The more I read it and think about it, the more I realize that um, Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is one of my favorites. It, uh, so many things about that book that speak to me and my life, and if you've read the book, perhaps you've had the same experience. But I was, I was thinking about um, this morning, I thought about a passage that Nowen includes that I think describes a lot of just the foundation for what, we, what I want to talk about today. And so let me read for you just this brief passage that Nowen writes. He's talking about the, the prodigal son who has gone away and what has, what's motivating him and what he's experiencing as he's in the far country. He says, it goes something like this. I'm not so sure anymore that I have a safe home. And I observe other people who seem to be better off than I. I wonder how I can get where they are. I try hard to please, to achieve success, to be recognized. When I fail, I am resentful and jealous of others. When I succeed, I am afraid of others being resentful and jealous of me. I become suspicious or defensive and increasingly afraid that I won't be able to get what I so much desire or that I'll lose what I already have. Caught in this tangle of needs and wants, I no longer know my own motivations. I feel victimized by my surroundings and distrustful of what others are doing or saying. Always on my guard, I lose my inner freedom and start dividing the world into those people who are for me and those people who are against me. I wonder if anyone really cared for me. I start looking for validations of my distrust. And wherever I go, I see them. And I say, no one can be trusted. And then I wonder whether anyone really loved me. The world around me becomes dark. My heart grows heavy. My body is filled with sorrows. My life loses meaning. I am a lost soul. I think in many ways, that is descriptive of people who live in a world of sin's consequences. Because sin has entered this world and because sin pervades this world, we live in a broken world. We live in the kind of world in which there are terrorists and there are bombings and there are break-ins and there is corruption 
And there are drive-by shootings. And there's greed. And there are accidents and disease and death. Because of sin, we live in a broken world. And we live broken lives. And we live with so much shame and guilt and pain and hurt and disappointment and anxiety and fear. And because of our brokenness, we cause other people to feel the brokenness. And we live with broken relationships because a great deal of what we experience and what we wrestle with is because of other people. And a great deal of what other people experience and wrestle with, quite frankly, is because of us. We say things and we do things that hurt one another. And sometimes we do it on purpose. And we disappoint each other. We cause great wounds for each other. And this is the kind of world in which we live. It's painful. It's broken because of sin's consequences. And we all know it's all too real. But I'm convinced that the deepest consequence of our sin, the deepest consequence of sin in our world, in our lives, is the distance that it creates between us and God. And in fact, it is that distance between us and God that causes all of this brokenness that we live with. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walk with God. There's a closeness, an intimacy with God. The minute sin enters the picture... There is distance. And it's not because God runs. It's because they run. The distance between us and God is not because we've committed such heinous sins, even though we may have, but it's not because we have committed these sins that then God looks at us and says, I can't stand these people. I'm going to run away from them as far as I can. It's because our sin causes us to now have a skewed, twisted view of God and we run from him in fear. And like Adam and Eve, we run and hide. And when God calls us, we don't want him to see us. Because of this distance between us and God, it creates this real and perceived distance. It creates a sense of apathy in us. If God is distant... If God doesn't really care that much about us and our lives and what we do and how we live, then what difference does it make? Do what we want. We just live for ourselves. We put ourselves right in the middle of everything. And every the 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 most important question we ask is, well, what does that mean for me? What does that have to do with me? How is that going to help me? And When you live with that kind of spirit, the default mechanism is not caring about other people or sacrificing for other people. And we don't really care that much if we hurt other people. His life's just about me. It's just about us. 
This distance from God creates all of the havoc. And while we're running away from God, we think it's because God is running from us. But the reality is he's chasing us. We aren't running in opposite directions. He's running the same direction we are trying to catch us. And we try, even in our best days, we may turn around sometimes and try to move back toward God. But it's sort of like being out in an apple orchard and seeing the perfect apple on a tree. And it's, but it's about 20 feet in the air and you spend your whole time trying to jump up and grab it. Our best intentions don't really get us that close. And so what does God do? comes to us. The prophet Zephaniah has described in the first couple of chapters all of the sin of Israel and God's judgment against them. I suspect Zephaniah is one of those books that we might say, really, that's in the Bible? I haven't seen that one for a while. It's one of those minor prophets hidden in the back, but it's a powerful book. Just three chapters. But those first couple of chapters, two and a half chapters, are all, are all about how Israel has turned from God and, and how God has, is pun- going to punish them for that. And then you get to chapter 3, and God says, in verses 15 and 17, here's the solution. I'm going to come and live among you. I'm going to be one of you. I am going to come where you are because you cannot get to where I am. And God comes. You know, there's some things you just can't do from a distance. It's pretty hard to parent from a distance. David Siemens used to tell us in counseling class, there are two things that are pretty difficult to do by correspondence course. One of them is counseling and the other one is swimming. And I think that's probably true. It's pretty hard to write a paper about swimming and learn to swim. You've got to get in the water. You need somebody in the water to help. And you can't save from a distance. If someone has fallen into a ravine, you somehow got to get to them. Either you climb down in or you throw them a rope and you hold the other end of it. But there has to be closeness in order to save. You can't save from a distance. And God knows that. And so God comes to be among us. Jesus is born to be among us. And we tend to think Jesus may come for the good people. Jesus comes because finally some of these human beings have figured it out. Some of these human beings have gotten their life together. They're a lot better than a lot of these other people. They don't have the issues. And that's why Jesus comes. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the prophecy that... The word of prophecy that Mary sings and the Magnificat that we just read is all about God coming to the people who don't deserve it. And the people that in, this, in our world of skewed priorities, they are at the bottom rungs of the ladder. It's the same thing Jesus says when he walks into the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry. And he sits down and pulls out the, God, the, book of, the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and to allow the lame to walk. 
bring this, the year of the Lord's favor. And he puts down the scroll and he says, today you're looking at the one who's going to do this. It's not because we have finally reached a level of worthiness. It's because of who God is, full of grace. God is wired for grace. I didn't always believe that. You know, for a long time, I believed God was wired for judgment. And grace just sort of was like uh, the caboose on the end of the train that just kind of got stuck on there. But when I read the scriptures, and ironically enough, the more I read the Old Testament, the more I realize that God is wired for grace. Yes, there's judgment. But it's judgment in the spirit of grace. It's not that God doesn't doesn't see, doesn't think about, I guess I'd use the word punishment or judgment the same way that we do when we have a tendency to want to punish or parent. You know, we tend to react and punish when we are embarrassed or hurt or angry or fearful. And often our punishment is based on how we look and how we feel And what people are going to think about us when our child is not behaving the way we want them to. And that's not to say we always do that, but sometimes we do. But that's not the way of God. God is all about what's in our best interest. And when we sin and God comes and speaks into that sin of convicting grace and judgment, it is not to say to us, ha, I caught you again, didn't I? You're going to pay big for that. You broke the rules. Rather, God's word of judgment is you do realize that behavior is leading you down a path of destruction, right? You do realize that if you keep that up, it's going to lead to everything you do not want. It's going to lead to more pain and agony and death and destruction and difficulty and struggle. And I don't want you to experience that. I've got all kinds of other plans for you. Plans of life and joy and peace and grace. It's this way. But sometimes he needs to wake us up to get us to see that. And so sometimes his words are harsh. But it's always in the spirit and in the context of grace. And the question for us is then what do we do? How do we respond to that? The fact that Jesus comes as the image of God's nature and character and grace in the midst of our sin and its consequences. Zephaniah says in verse 14, beginning of this section, O daughter, and I'll add, sons of Jerusalem, sing and shout and rejoice. Be glad. Celebrate. This is good news. Jesus says in Nazareth, when he reads from Isaiah, he has come to reveal the year of the Lord's favor. Goodness. I don't think the church celebrates enough. I don't think we exude joy enough. 
I think we, are, we have allowed the evil one to make us so enamored with our sin that we are ignoring God's solution in Christ and that he has set us free and that we need to celebrate and rejoice. We come together for worship to be reminded of who God is and what God has done for us and it is glorious. But we also come for worship so that together we can express our gratitude to God and we can sing and shout and, and rejoice and celebrate together. And it is, a, it is an, an act of trust to do that because the world isn't fixed totally yet. And every time we sing God's praises, every time we shout God's praises, every time we celebrate who God is and what God has done for us in Christ, it is an act of faith that God keeps his word, that God is who he says he is. And we do that even though we sing and we shout and we rejoice and celebrate in spite of Because we believe God is who he says he is. And we celebrate. And Zephaniah says to Israel, when you start living like that, when you start trusting me like that, and I get inside of you as a people, the rest of the nations around you are going to take notice. That's what happens when people are joyful. When people have the joy of the Lord in them, they take notice. We often talk in in the holiness tradition, in the tradition of our church, about being holy. And quite frankly, that often has communicated not joy, but sternness. Not grace, but harshness. No wonder people say, you know what, I'm good. I, I think I'll do, I'll just stick with what I've got. To be holy is to be like God. And to be like God is to be full of grace and joy and blessing and truth. And yes, sometimes judgment, but always in the context of grace and love. And I'm convinced that joy attracts people far more than fear does. You know, when I was growing up, the evangelism tool that we often used was the first question, if you die tonight... Would you go to heaven? Or even another question, if you died tonight, would God, why would God let you into heaven? And while there may be some value to that, I have a couple of issues that I've come to see in that. One of them is it, it implies that being a Christian is first and foremost about getting to heaven. And while I think that is an awesome part of it, I think God first and foremost wants to transform our lives now. And to give us joy now. And to fill us with his peace now and his grace and his holiness now and eternal life. But the other part of that question that bothers me is that it comes from a a place, from a foundation of fear. If we can just scare you enough, maybe you'll want to go to heaven. Maybe you'll want Jesus. And while there is a place certainly for being honest about the reality of eternal life... I think that the joy of the Lord in his people is a far more effective tool for people to understand who God is than to try to instill fear.
The more I think about this, and our struggle to grasp it, I think it comes back to to an inability to believe that God truly feels about us the way he says he does. The prodigal son ran off because he didn't really believe his father thought of him the way he really thought of him. And I think that's our struggle too. And that's what fascinates me when you come to the 17th verse of Zephaniah's prophecy. God says, I will live among you because I, and you won't have to fear anymore because I delight in you. I delight in you. God delights in us. He likes us. We bring joy to God. Does he like everything we do? No. Have we arrived at every place, the, the, the place where he totally wants us to be? No. But he delights in us. You know, one of the foundational things that sets us apart from so many other religions of the world is our creation story. You know, you, when you read the ancient Near Eastern, other cre- the creation stories of the other ancient Near Eastern nations around Israel, uh, human beings in the world are, are started either usually either by accident or as punishment. You know, gods have a battle, somebody loses. Okay, your punishment is human beings. Somebody spills something, the earth gets formed. Hey, you did it. Human beings, you've got to deal with them now. And that's why in all these other religious expressions of worship and prayer, everybody is trying to convince, to trick, to cajole, to manipulate, to, to plead and beg with their gods to do what they want them to do because they know in their hearts the gods don't want to do good for them. They don't love them. They don't like them. They're a menace to them. It is only the biblical creation story that begins with God saying, I want to create. I want to create the world. I want to create people. I want to create everything on it. No one's making me do this. I want to do it because I want relationship with these people and I want them to know me and, to them and me to know them. And I want intimacy with them and that's why I've created them. And our sin skews that image. Jesus comes to reconfigure our skewed perspective of God. It's hard to get a handle on that. I think we wrestle all of our lives to believe that's true. To really believe that God delights in us, that when we come to worship and we're singing praises to him, he is feeling joyful about us. I suspect that is why I have been intrigued for a number of years 
by something I read from Dennis Kinlaw. And he said that in the early centuries of the church, as theologians were trying to figure out what the church believed and didn't believe and all of these things, someone asked the question, if human beings hadn't sinned, would Jesus have still come? And there were a number of the theologians who said, yes. Even if human beings hadn't sinned, Jesus would have still come. And their reason was this. Because God likes us. Because God wants relationship and intimacy with us. The kind of relationship and intimacy that can come only by being one of us. We don't know. Scripture doesn't really address the question. But it does seem to me like that resembles the heart of God. But the amazing thing is we did sin. And we sinned mightily. And Jesus came anyway. And why did he come? Because God loves us. And even more, God likes us. He delights in us. And he wants us to know him. And to let him redeem us. And heal us. Make us new. And you get to the end of this in the New Living Translation, the very last words of Zephaniah's prophecy are simply, I, the Lord, have spoken. Period. It's not, it's not some kind of wishful thinking. It's not the impossible dream. It's the word of God. Period. And we're invited to experience Jesus. Holy Father, somehow help us to see who you are. What you think about us. What you want to do for us in Jesus. Make us new. Heal us. And let it start with a new image of who you are. We pray this through Christ. Amen.